Well, greetings, everyone. Truth be told, it is a bit weird preaching uh, to an empty sanctuary. And for those who are used to gathering together, I'm sure it feels a bit odd, too. Now, though it's different, let us not be dismayed. Though separated in space, we are united in spirit. If you are in Christ, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you and in me and all who gather in his name today. And the Holy Spirit is a spirit of unity who unites us in Christ as we study his word together. So, let's begin. We are getting back into the sermon series we were in before the coronavirus. We are in the book of Colossians. Our series is titled, Walking in Faithfulness. How appropriate given our trying circumstances. Our passage is Colossians 2 verses 8 through 15, but I'd like to read verses 6 and 7 from three weeks ago, so we may begin where we left off. May God grant favor as we read his word. Beginning in verse 6. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is the word of God, the grass withers, the flower fades. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, if we want to know his way, we must know his word. Have you ever seen the bumper sticker, God is my co-pilot? It seems spiritual, but it isn't biblical. What would the biblical bumper sticker say? Well, it would read, God is my pilot, not co-pilot. And we should want God to pilot our lives. He is the one who knows all, sees all, and directs all. He is the one with the map and the plan. He is the one who charts the course of all human history. We have a big fancy term for this, sovereignty. God is sovereign. He is king over all creation. That is the point that this letter has been driving home, that Jesus, the Son of God, is God, God in the flesh. And he made all things and holds all things together. It might not look like it, but everything in heaven and on earth is all about Christ. He is King. He is Lord. And so at times like this, where a worldwide virus spread cuts us off at the knees, we need to be reminded that Jesus is on his throne. He is sovereign. He is King. 
And because of this, he must pilot our souls. He must captain our ship. Whatever earthly happiness you've lost recently, whatever loss of job, loss of 401k, loss of security, and yes, even loss of health, whatever it is that has you feeling out of control, whatever fullness of life that is now stripped from you, as you wonder from where will victory come for you, well, God has a word for you. It is what Paul is addressing in our short passage and it comes to us at the most perfect time. Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 to 15 address our three great longings. Verse 8 addresses our longing to be in control. Verses 9 and 10 address our longing for fullness. And verses 11 through 15 address our longing for triumph. With love and great concern, Paul delivers an amazing truth to this church that changes everything for them and for us. Not only is Christ alive, risen from the dead, and ruling and reigning in heaven, but God has done something marvelous. Look at the middle part of verse 13. God made us alive together with him who is Christ. There is no greater news we could ever hear. Through the cross of Christ, God has gifted us with life in him. Listen and rejoice. Let this truth lift you and carry you always, but especially in this trying time. God has made you alive, alive in Christ. Oh, and by the way, that happens to be our motto here at Grace Presbyterian Church, alive in Christ. And being alive in Christ means everything for you and me. That's what we will see this morning. We will divide our time under three headings. The three headings will be these three longings that we long to experience in life. In life, we long for control, we long for fullness, and we long for triumph. Now, let the Word of God show us how we experience these longings in Christ. First, our longing for control. Paul is warning us to be careful, careful as to who or what controls us. Look at how he begins verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive. We Americans pride ourselves that we, are, that we come from the land of the free and the home of the brave. But the crisis we are going through challenges us. We don't feel all that free or that brave. We don't feel all that in control. And yet, certainly, when we move on from this epidemic, there's a likelihood that most will go back to feeling somewhat in control of life. And so when we read Paul's words, see to it that no one takes you captive, our knee-jerk reaction is to think that he's offering advice for someone else. But the truth is, though most of us are not physically captive, according to Paul, we are all in one of two camps. Captive to an empty, worldly approach to life, or captive to Christ in his divine approach to life. If you still doubt you are susceptible to the influences of others, consider the last time you bought a new vehicle. Now, if you've always bought used cars, or what I call a new-to-me car, just play along. 
When purchasing your last car, why did you walk into the Mercedes dealership or the Toyota dealership or Subaru or Range Rover? You think you chose that particular brand of vehicle freely, but no, you were held captive by marketers. The clever ad agency told a story about their brand that caused you to aspire to it and you bought one. My point is, our vehicle purchases are what they are because we aren't as free as we think we are. Marketers hold us captive. Paul warns of something worse though, being taken captive with a way of thinking and living in this world that causes us to feel like we are in control. In verse 8, Paul warns this young church, and he warns us, look again at verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. Now, what does he mean by philosophy and empty deceit? Well, he's not being critical of Aristotle or Plato. Paul isn't saying philosophy is bad. Our word philosophy comes from two Greek words, Sophia, which means wisdom, and from the word phileo, which means love. From it, we get the words Philadelphia and phileo fish. What? Are you serious? Okay, um, strike that. Not phileo fish. Philadelphia, though. So the word philosophy literally means love of wisdom. It's not a bad thing. In fact, it's an extremely worthy endeavor. But the philosophy Paul warns of is described as empty deceit. Empty, it sounds interesting, it seems full of promise, but it is empty on the inside. When I was a young boy at Easter, my mom used to buy us those chocolate Easter bunnies. You remember those? Do you know what I always wondered as I was about to bite the ear off? I hope it's not hollow. Dang, why are these always hollow? Much of what the world offers us, as far as what life is all about, it's just as empty as those hollow chocolate bunnies. And so it is also then deceptive. Being deceived is not such a big deal if it's regarding chocolate Easter bunnies. But it is a big deal when it comes to our worldview. And my friends, every human develops a worldview. Your worldview is how you look at life. It addresses big things like, what is life about? How did this world and humanity come into existence? Where does meaning and purpose come from? What does a life well lived look like? Our worldviews also address what we have decided to believe regarding the existence of God and who, and who Jesus is. We all have worldviews that we've developed over time. Paul is warning this church, don't be held captive by empty philosophy or worldviews. And then he provides us three hallmarks. Each is introduced by the phrase, according to. The first hallmark is that it is what? according to human tradition. In other words, it is man-made. It is not according to the Word of God. It comes from outside of Scripture. Think about it. If there is a God who made this universe and mankind, then He alone has the answers. He alone must inform our worldview. He must speak. And He has spoken in power and in love 
in our Holy Scriptures. The second hallmark is that it is according to the elemental spirits of the world. This, this has been a hard phrase to decipher. It could be that Paul is referring to ethical principles that are not rooted in Scripture, or he may be thinking that these elementary spirits relate to spiritual forces that were believed to con control things, like planets and stars. It would be like astrology today, where people believe that the way the sun and the moon and the stars are aligned have control over human lives on earth. So Paul is warning this church regarding the outsiders. They say that if you follow our secret knowledge and our secret teachings and our secret rituals, you can exercise power over these spiritual beings who are controlling the stars and planets in life on earth. In other words, we can now take control of our lives and find fullness and triumph and freedom. Now, perhaps you were thinking, I don't believe in astrology, so Paul's words aren't for me. Well, consider my story. When I was younger, I had a consuming desire to prove to the world that I am somebody. So I worked hard to control my destiny. I went into sales selling computer products. I worked harder than any other salesperson. And within two years, I was the top salesperson in the company. After four years, I left to start my own computer business. And the business grew. And as it grew, I became filled with pride. Although starting a business was hard, I felt in control. But ultimately, I was basing my life on an empty man-made philosophy that says life is about you, Mark, making a name for yourself, which proves to the world that you are somebody. How about you? What is it you cling to for control in your life? Probably not astrology, but something. I hope you also understand that God is amazing. He can actually use times like these, a global pandemic, to cause millions of people to realize how powerless they truly are to control their lives. And in the humility that comes upon them, they turn to Christ and yield their lives to Him. Jesus, pilot my life, please. Those are the first two hallmarks to avoid. The third hallmark is in contrast to the others. The third hallmark Paul describes as not according to Christ. And who is Christ? Well, Paul reminds them in verse 9 what he has been describing so far in this letter. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. My friends, this is what we must come to embrace. The worldview that you develop that isn't according, excuse me, the worldview that you develop that is according to Christ isn't man-made but divine. It isn't empty and deceitful. Listen, process what I'm about to say. The message of Jesus isn't just come to me and find and have your sins forgiven. The message of Jesus is my kingdom has come to earth. It has been ushered in. Bow your knee to me, your loving king. Let me fight your battles. Let me lead your way in life. Let me provide. 
Let me form your identity. Let me shepherd you to green pastures and still waters. Let me show you what is right and good. Let me help you make wise decisions. Let me bear the burdens of life that weigh upon you. Don't take control in your own hands. Trust me. Trust me. I know the way. Follow me. Give me full control over your life and you will not for one moment regret it. How can we know to trust him as he controls our lives? How can we get this trust? My friends, think this through. What is the most out of control moment in human history? It was when human beings made in God's image killed the innocent son of God who had come to save them. God incarnate hanging on a cross. And all the disciples, they freaked out and lost control and fled. But something amazing, right? Jesus Christ was in absolute control, which means for us, listen, if Jesus can be in full control during the greatest chaos ever, then can he not control our lives in goodness and in glory at all times? Not only do we long for control, we also long for fullness. Paul wants us to see in the second point that we experience fullness in Christ. Verses 9 and 10 form the heart of Paul's argument. In simple, powerful language, Paul describes the incarnation and how it brings the blessing of fullness to our lives. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. Understand what Paul is saying. He is not saying that Jesus was a really good person who reflected God's character like none other. Paul is making sure we understand that in Jesus is found the essence of God. All the fullness, the whole fullness, not part of it, of deity, that is divine nature, dwells bodily. He's not a ghost. Jesus is God in the flesh. Not someone who excelled at being godlike, but someone who is perfectly good and glorious and lovable because he is God. Paul is telling us this truth that all of the fullness of deity dwells in Jesus, so that we would recognize how foolish it is to go anywhere else to experience fullness of life and salvation. And amazingly, Paul adds these words, and you have been filled in him. You have been filled in him. This points us to that blessed doctrine that we talk about a lot here at Grace Church, the doctrine of union with Christ, which is everywhere in this passage. A Christian is someone who has been united with Christ. As we read in verse 13, God made us alive together with him, Christ. All throughout the New Testament, we read of our union with Christ. In verse 12, we read, having been buried with him in baptism, 
in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. Listen, try to understand this. It's in a mysterious, mystical, and yet no less true way, our lives have been hidden in Christ. The illustration I regularly use is that of a bookmark being placed into a book. If wherever the book goes, so to the bookmark. If the book gets wet, so to the bookmark. If the book is thrown into the fire and turns to ashes, so to the bookmark. Christian, by God's grace and the work of the Holy Spirit, He has placed you like a bookmark in Christ. And so, try to fathom this. And so every marvelous thing that Christ did, we too experienced it in Him. Because of our union with Christ, when Jesus lived his perfect life, so to us as we were there in him, his death on the cross in our place, we were there in him as our sins were nailed to the cross upon him. We were buried with him in the grave and we're now risen and made alive together with him. Our lives are now in Christ. And listen, and nothing in heaven or earth can separate us from the love of Christ that binds us in him. And so, Paul's point for us to grasp is that our lives have been brought into the very life of the full one. Think it through. There is nothing lacking in Jesus' existence. No one or no thing can add anything to make his life more full and glorious and joyful. Jesus embodies absolute, divine, joyful fullness. And listen, let this sink deep into your thirsty soul. God has united your life to Christ, whose life is absolutely full. Again, Paul writes, and you have been filled in him. The Greek word translated to fill also means to complete. What does this mean for us? It means the search is over. The search for fullness is done. By God's grace, you have been made alive in Christ. And add to that, you have been filled in him. Let that sink in. If you have trusted in Christ, then God has taken you and hidden your life in Christ's life. God has completed you by uniting you to the only one whose fullness overflows from heaven. And so, the challenge to us this morning is this. Why on earth would we look anywhere else for fullness? Why would we turn to the hollow chocolate bunnies that the world offers? Why seek a life of contentment apart from heaven's source of true contentment? And yet we try. We try to be filled in all sorts of ways, through human relationships, and then they let us down. We try to fill our lives by going to the right schools, and so control our destinies, believing fullness is only one graduation away or one career change away or one smart investment away. And then what happens? Oh, not that you don't succeed, you do. 
You get what you long for. But then what happens? You find you're not satisfied with what you got, and so you want more. The point we need to grasp, that the world doesn't want us to believe, the point we need to grasp is that the world can never fully satisfy. But if Christ is your all in all, then no matter what comes your way in life, be it trials or triumph, you are filled in Him. So we have seen that we long for control and we long for fullness. We also long for triumph. In this last point, Paul addresses our longing for triumph. We long to be conquerors in life. We desire triumphant life. Paul shows us that only in Christ can we experience what we long for. To triumph means to, to overcome, to conquer, to vanquish one's enemies. No one is satisfied with participating in life. We all long to be triumphant. We want lives of victory. Victory displayed in the marketplace. Victory displayed in our fancy cars. Victory displayed in our bank balances. We want to look like, well, Roman generals. And ancient Rome generals traveled seeking to conquer far-flung nations. And you wouldn't have CNN to live stream footage from the battlefield to prove that you had won a great victory. So the only way a Roman general could show you that he had really won a great victory was to parade all the captives, all the prisoners in front of your eyes. So the general would march the conquered soldiers in shackles all the way back into his hometown for all to see. First there would be the great soldiers, they would pass by, and then the conquering general. And behind him would be all the defeated captives on display for all to see. That is the picture we need in our minds when we read Paul's words in verse 15. He, God, disarmed the rulers and authorities by putting them to open shame, triumphing over them in him. That's Christ. Here is what the good news of Christianity is about. The Son of God, not us, has triumphed with the greatest victory ever, far greater than Conor McGregor versus Nate Diaz, far greater than the Allies defeating the Nazis. God has triumphed through Christ, and we get to enjoy the spoils with Him. First, let's look at the means of our triumph, and then we will look at the spoils we enjoy. The means of our triumph is simple, yet profound, unexpected, yet perfect in hindsight. The means of triumph is the cross. When Jesus went to the cross, he was not caught off guard. He knew what was happening. It was all part of the plan. He was in complete control. As he hung on the cross, no doubt Satan and all his demons believed the victory was theirs. And as Jesus breathed his last, they must have believed that they won the victory. But then, three days later, the stone began to roll. The cross was unexpected by everyone on earth except for Jesus. On Palm Sunday, as Jesus began his what is called the triumphal entrance into Jerusalem, the people cheered, believing that Jesus was their promised Messiah who would conquer 
uh, for the nation. By the end of the week, these same people started shouting, crucify him. See, it became apparent that Jesus wasn't going to win the victory by the means they preferred. They preferred a large-scale military overthrow of their perceived enemies, the Romans. But God had bigger fish to fry. So Jesus went to the cross, a lonely cross on a bloody hill. That is the battlefield upon which the greatest victory ever on earth took place. The means of God's triumph is the cross, not for the spoils that we enjoy as followers of Christ. There are three spoils that we enjoy in our passage. They are fellowship, forgiveness, and freedom. First, fellowship. In verses 11 and 12, Paul uses the covenant language of circumcision and baptism to describe our fellowship with God. He writes, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in his baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Now, what does this all mean? Circumcision and baptism are fellowship words. Circumcision was the sign given to Abraham and his descendants. Abraham and his whole household signified that they belong to the one true God, Yahweh. It set them apart as those who were privileged to have fellowship with God Almighty. Circumcision was an outward sign, a bloody sign, given to eight-day-old male children of the covenant people of God. With Christ, there came a change to the outward sign of the covenant fellowship. The bloody sign of membership was replaced by water. Now, apparently they were outsiders who were saying to the Colossian Christians that one of the rituals they need to do if they're going to attain fullness is to be circumcised. And so Paul is informing the Colossians that they were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, that is, by God upon their hearts. And, and Paul says that this divine circumcision is signified by their baptism with water. In other words, Colossians, you have the only covenant sign that matters now. God has brought you into his people, and his people are no longer a nation of Israel, but the body of Christ, the church. You have experienced the circumcision of the heart that the Old Testament commended. God has done it with his own hands. The cross has brought you the spoil of intimate fellowship with God. Your baptism signifies this. So the first spoil Paul points, us, points out to us is our fellowship with God as members of his covenant family. The second spoil is forgiveness. We see this in verses 13 and 14. God brings us forgiveness in Christ. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Understand this important truth. Until you experience God's forgiveness, God's way, your status before God is that of being dead 
in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Now, to be uncircumcised meant to be cut off from the people of God, cut off from his mercy and grace and dead in your trespasses and sins. It means though physically alive, you are spiritually dead and you need what Jesus told Nicodemus. You need to be born again by the Holy Spirit. Paul calls the Colossians a people who were dead. See, they are no longer dead. They have come alive by God's grace. If you are in Christ, then you have been given new life in Christ. Again, verse 13, God made us alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Did you notice that Paul includes himself, a Jew by birthright? Having forgiven us all our trespasses. How has God forgiven us? Did he hide our sins under a rug? Did he say, oh, it's no big deal, don't worry about it? Think about how hard it is for you to forgive someone. Are you able to forget about the business partner who embezzled 1.5 million dollars from you? Are you able to just sweep that divorce under the rug? No. Forgiveness is hard. Forgiveness is costly. A debt must be paid and that is what God did for us in sending his son to die on the cross. Look again at the end of verse 13. Having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Please understand this. Forgiveness is not an overlooking of sin, nor is it a sweeping of it under the rug. Our sin is like a, a record of debt, one so enormous that none of us are able to make a settlement with God with our own resources, but God, in grace, takes the debt upon himself. As Paul says, he nails it to the cross. In other words, if you trust in Jesus, your sins become nailed to the cross. And on the cross, your debt is forever settled. God has given us a costly forgiveness. It is one of the spoils we enjoy from Jesus' triumph. The third spoil that Christ gives us is freedom. Jesus has disarmed the rulers in authority that held us captive to the empty deceit and elementary spirits of the world. Jesus triumphed over them. And because you, the Christian, are now alive in Christ, you live as one who is freed from your sinful past and now filled with the Spirit of Christ. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Remember that. Understand this truth. This world is full of people who believe they're completely free apart from Christ, that there is nothing they are not free to do. But they don't understand this, that you're not really free until you're able to freely love and delight and glorify God. My friends, we are creatures made by our loving Creator for fellowship with Him. But our sin makes us dead to God. And so people who are dead to God are not free to do the one thing all humanity was made for, to draw near to God and enjoy Him. 
Perhaps you're listening as a skeptic. If you defy what I have just said, and you think you are free in every possible way, and you're ticked that I would say otherwise, okay then, let's do this. Let's put you to the test. If you are completely free right now, then do it. Draw near to God right now. Prove me wrong. Delight in God with great joy. Express your love of Him. Tell God that of all the things in this world, you, you treasure Him most. What would you say? Oh, that doesn't come naturally to you? I'm sorry, my friend. Guess what? You lack freedom. In the one area, it matters most. You are not free to love and glorify the God who made you. If you declare that you are free in every way, but you lack the ability to draw near to God with joy and delight, then you are not really free. Something is holding you captive. If this concerns you, guess what? You're in a good place. You are not without hope. Turn to Christ and trust Him. Yield your control to Him. Find your fullness in Him. Let Christ triumph for you. Allow His victory on the cross to bring the spoils of fellowship and forgiveness and freedom. I implore you, do that now. For the rest of us who have already trusted in Christ, may this worldwide crisis work to humble us anew. May we put the correct sticker, God is my pilot, upon the bumper stickers of our hearts. Grace Church, God has made us alive together with Christ. We are alive in Christ. May we delight in His triumph for us. May we continue to find fullness of life in Him. And may we yield control of our lives to Christ. We are alive in Christ. Let us live in Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You've done for us what we cannot do for ourselves. You have given us new life. You have brought us back from the dead. You have given us now hearts that long for You. You've given us minds that can truly comprehend uh, Your love and Your care for us in Christ Jesus. May we be reminded afresh this morning that we are alive in Christ, that this doctrine of union with Christ is so important, and it's true in a powerful, spiritual, Holy Spirit way, in a mystical way, you unite us to Christ. Our lives are hidden in Him. And so all that Jesus is, we are. Oh, how that frees us. It frees us from trying to triumph in this world for our own glory. It, it frees us to find fullness in you and you alone. And it allows us to yield our control to you, Jesus. We desire that right now. Amen.